Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, you're joined by your host, Heavy Days, here from the Upside Down Library. And as always, we couldn't make these episodes happen without the help from our sponsors. Seeds here now, number one seed bank in the industry, all the hottest breeders, the latest drops, and a guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Why would you go anywhere else? They guarantee you'll be happy with the end results to grow. What more could you want? Well, you need to make sure that your harvest is on point. And to do that, you want to make sure that your garden is happy, healthy, pest and pathogen free. And in order to do that, you need to check out our buddies at Coppet Biological Systems. These guys have all the best predators in the game. From the Apiparam if you've got aphids, to the Spidex Vital if you've got spider mites. Get it now, guys. Keep your garden pumping on all pistons, pest and pathogen free. Trust me, guys. Nothing better than knowing your garden is clean. As always, shout out to our friends down under holding down the fort. Organic gardening solutions for all your organic gardening needs. Best soil in the game is what I use. Check them out. Or if you're looking for some of my genetics, go to Top Shelf Seed Bank. They've got a great range of both domestic and international breeders. Go check them out if you're after some of my work. And last but not least, huge shout out to the Patreon gang. You guys are truly the lifeblood of the show. Without you, episodes could not happen. If you're interested in helping support the show, all while getting early access to episodes, unheard additional content, prizes and giveaways, check out the Patreon. On this episode, we're joined by our second friend from the final frontier, Jaime Chiba, the man behind Alaskan Cannabis Seed Cache, a seed preserver and historian in his own right. He's come on the show today to tell us about some of his breedings, some plans for the future, and talk about some RKS. So without further ado... Let's get into it. All right, friends, we're back for another one. And on this episode, we're joined by the old school head and founder of Alaskan Cannabis Cache, Jaime Chiba. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. As always, I'd love to start the show by asking our guests, what have you been smoking on recently? Well, we got a local strain here called Mud Bite Delight, and it's pretty much a staple for me, so... I kind of kind of stick with that. It's it's an old school strain, uh, originally developed in the early '60s by a chemist, believe it or not, who uh, brought it back from uh, South Africa. Wow, that's actually one of the strains I was going to ask you about. Not just because it's sort of in your repertoire, but I I'd actually dug up some posts on various forums where people were like, you know, talking about how much they enjoyed it. Does that mean that it's sort of um, South African genetics is what it's made up of? Yes, totally. Back then there wasn't, uh, you know, everything was in seed. There was no clones or, or anything. So pretty much, uh, the seeds in someone's pocket is, is what ended up being some of the stuff that was, you know, grown here in Alaska and California. Yeah. Wow. And so would you describe that as sort of like a more uplifting effect and like, what's the flavors on it? You know, it's, it's got a, a really heavy, uh, ripe, strawberry terp to it uh real heavy um anise 
Annis is another one. So, um, you know, kind of leads me to think that uh, there might be a, a, a few more strains in there than, than I thought. It might be a, a wild hybrid, so to speak. Uh, a lot of that was going on, and in, in, uh, uh, it was Rhodesia at the time. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to say because the, the breeder, the original breeder, I never met him. I met the people that uh, inherited uh, the strain, and then I just kept it going. My first job as a pot grower was to uh, pack water for Mud Bite Delight. That's really interesting. And I mean, you know, you, you referenced the anise flavor in there, and that's one that commonly gets thrown around as like the typical description for a Durban. Do you see some overlap there? Yeah, it has, uh, you know, I, I want to say it has uh, Durban in it, most definitely, and then some heavy Afghani uh, presence in there also but it's a great daytime smoke keeps you uh, uh motivated uh doing things but it's got a good stone so if you got aches and pains and you're old like i am it, it helps helps a lot that's awesome to hear i had noticed while scrolling through your instagram that obviously a wide variety of different strains, but a lot of them sort of fell under the general umbrella of Afghani. And I was sort of wondering, are you like me in that you would say sort of generally speaking, you're, you're a fan of the Afghanis? I am, but I'm also a fan of sativas. I'm a, um, you know, you say breeder, I'm more of a preservationist. That's what I call myself. Um, you know, some people have called me the crazy seed collector. Um, a lot of people came to my home over the years and the few people that I showed what I had going on thought I was, you know, insane for just growing weed with seeds in it <laughs> and preserving strains instead of selling weed. You know, that was the thing. And that's what everybody did during my era. So, um, you know, kind of this is validation to an old crazy guy after all these years of, uh, having seeded plants and trying to explain it to good friends and, uh, and people that I, that I meet in the, in the industry over the years, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, now, um, you know, as far as the breeding goes, I, I took what came to me and I crossed it, but I did a lot of work. So it's the work that you put in that makes you a breeder and the testing and sending it out there and getting results from other people that in that sense, I think makes you a breeder. I call myself a breeder only because I do that. I have everything tested by other people and I accept whatever they have to say about whatever I put out there. And um, I'll either release something or I won't depending on what they, what they give me, what their feedback is. Yeah, wow. It, it's funny because like as you were saying that in my mind, I'm like ticking these boxes. I'm like, yep, that, that checks out, that checks out, that checks out. And then at the end of it, I'm like, wait, you just described like what being a good breeder is, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, like I said before, my currency is time. It's not money. Um, all Everything I do just to bring something to an F5 will take me six to seven years. You know, and, and I've worked with a lot of different uh, strains and, and brought them up to that point, but I haven't released a lot because it's been so much work to just set it out there and have somebody grab it up and call it something else 
uh, kind of would break my heart. Uh, it's kind of a collector thing, I guess, or, or part of my mental illness of, of uh, collecting uh, seeds and, and working with strains for over these years, not, uh, not giving them away. You might call me a, a hoarder. A lot of people called me a hoarder when I wouldn't release a roadkill skunk. And uh, that's basically what prompted me to release it, that and being called uh, greedy and selfish. And I, I, none of those things. It, it was just that um, I could have released a stable version or an IBL. And I, and I thought, you know, the IBL, that would release the whole genome to everybody so they can work with it and find what they want in there. And there's been a myriad of things, but there is no floral accents like a lot of people are finding in some skunks. Uh, the roadkill originally had none of that. Well, that's what it was originally called. It was originally called roadkill, not roadkill skunk. That came that came about in the, uh, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, people started calling it RKS and roadkill skunk when I, I started uh, selling clones. Yeah, wow. A lot of lot of like sort of notable t uh, points to touch on in that one. We'll have to loop back to a few of them. Before we jump into sure, the roadkill no skunk stuff, I just wanted to quickly ask, in the prior question you referenced, you know, like you were hanging on to all these seeds all through the 80s and 90s. I'm wondering, did you have the foresight back then to know that like at some point in the future, these seeds would be valuable or was it more different? And it was just like, oh, I just want to retain my own seeds really. That's how it started out. And, um, then, um, in my travels, I traveled extensively. Uh, I met a few people that were doing the same thing as me, but they seemed as crazy as I was and, um, got the same feedback. Um, what really spurred me on and the part that most people don't understand because it was illegal, there was a lot of people that would uh, lose their strains uh, because a girlfriend would turn them in or they were stupid or they let somebody in or they just plain got busted door got kicked in and they lost their strain. Well, I started to think, well, if, if I'm going to keep doing this um, to, to collect more and to get more, I can guarantee people, that have a saleable product that they're, they're making money on out there selling every day uh, bags to the public. If I take their strain and I save it, then um, I have those genetics that they want to start over. I have those in seed form. Sometimes it was clones, but I, I prefer not to work with clones. Um, trying to keep them alive over a long period of time. I've kept some clones alive most <laughs> longer than I ever should have, but, um, that's a lot more work than, uh, breeding or working with seeds, uh, stock. Uh, the toughest thing for me was the, uh, retention of males, uh, trying to keep, um, the, the, I have a pretty extensive seed stock and trying to keep all these things alive. I regenerate them every three years. So every three years, I'll, I'll regrow as much as I can in a rotating basis. So nothing gets older than three years and doesn't lose its viability for germination. But that's, uh, you know, a lot of people don't do that, but that's the only way if you're going to make sure that somebody gets the product that they want or they were working with before, that they have a reasonable uh, experience 
and uh, growing it out, germinating it, and and getting what they had before. Yeah, certainly. I think what you just referenced there with strains being lost is a, a plight felt by most breeders. I think most people who have come on the show can talk of a few strains they've regrettably lost over the years that they wish they still had. I, I wanted to quickly ask, though, you mentioned, you know, um, breeding things over multiple generations. And I'd be interested to know from your perspective, let's use the roadkill skunk, for example, because I'm sure we'll talk about it a bunch throughout the episode. I think I think you've got sure. it at the F5 or maybe even a little further at the moment. What have you sort of noticed change over the generations as you've worked with it? Have you been able to narrow things a bit or are you trying to open it up? I'm trying to open it up. What I what I find what uh, has really happened with it is it's lost its uh, heavy stone effect. Um, it's uh, more of a um, a happier stone. A lot of people are enjoying it. It does have that old uh, old school uh, effect, but it doesn't have the original heavy stone uh, when I first sourced it. Uh, when I sourced it in uh, in uh, Albion area of Mendocino. Um, from some old hippie couple and their commune like people that was growing outdoors in, in, in that region. And uh, in California, they had what are called planting holes. And you dig a hole in this clay soil, this uh, dense clay soil, and then you'd add soil or amended soil to that, that you made your own soil and you grow your plants in that. Well, in that region, uh, there's a pH problem or alkalinity problem that stunts the trees and natural growth of, of the bushes and plants around there. So um, one of the things I recommend to people with roadkill is that you adjust your pH downwards um, to, to bring out the, the heavier scent. I noticed the further, further you get away um, with your pH, the higher you go with it, the, uh, the less it stinks. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I mean, it makes sense, you know, sort of using the known terroir effect. I'd be interested to know, have you ever fiddled around with adding or subtracting sulfur from the soil and seeing, because a lot of people always throw out the idea of like roadkill skunk maybe has like some thiol, some sulfur type compounds in it. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I a lot of people use sulfur uh, up here you know, we, we, uh, we really don't have issues where we require sulfur. Uh, so I, I never, uh, experimented too much with sulfur at all, but I have heard that I have heard about the thiols, um, you know, without having DNA testing or, you know, genetic testing on things, uh, it, it's hard to say exactly what's in there that creates the stench, but the the plant, when it's when it was growing in its prime, uh, you the place that I I sourced it from was uh, upriver, about uh, three quarters of a mile. You could actually smell part of the grove from one o or Highway One on the coast. So you had you had uh, ocean air blowing in, but you could still downriver smell the smell of of that grow that particular grow. It was one of the first ones on the river. Yeah, wow. Okay. And so do you think that the reason why we don't see it anymore is because it just was, as people sort of say, it, it, people just got busted with it? 
you know, that's the reason I stopped making clones available. Um, there was just too many people getting busted. I mean, uh, really good people that, that, that I know really well. And, and with, uh, I don't know if you had it going on over there in Australia, but they were taking everything you had under federal forfeiture laws and police departments were getting rich and, and good folks that, uh, the only thing that, you know, they were doing was, you know, selling marijuana for, for a living. Uh, they were, they were getting, uh, busted and losing everything they had sometimes their children so those stories uh you know they're they're too horrible to listen to for for a plant that you know you had a part in making sure it got distributed widely but i think its downfall really was that it's a medium yielder at best and when big bud came in bc big bud it kind of stole the show that and the widows and the whites kind of stole the show as 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 a uh, a commercial grow so to speak and and uh, a lot of what i did as far as uh unknown strains a lot of people say well, what's the name of that well sometimes i've got a strain that's just called bob strains but it's completely a knockout strain um you know i don't know the background of the strain because when i got it from bob he didn't know you know it might have been bag seed he doesn't know its origins, but it made him a lot of money. So I preserved it. And then when, you know, especially around here where people got used to smoking it for years, I would let it back out. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, what's what's the genetics on this? I'm like, your guess is as good as mine. So on that end, like I say, being a preservationist and a breeder uh, are two separate things. If I'm preserving something, I want to preserve something as close to the original as possible, uh, especially in those instances in seed form, so I could get that uh, person that lost everything up and running again. Yeah, that's that's a very sort of noble uh, cause. I, I can definitely jive with that. And I mean, while we're on the topic of talking about the genetics in a strain, one of the tales you hear about the roadkill skunk, and I think you'd be the perfect person to ask, is that it sort of originally had its roots in uh, like the bikey scene. Do you believe there's any truth to that, given you just said, you know, you actually got it from a hippie community? Well, to be honest with you, I, I went, I used to go to, um, Garberville, California to the Redwood run. I am a biker. And, uh, when I'd go to Garberville to the Redwood run, they'd have all these different rock and roll shows. Well, I also uh, hooked up with a lot of regional, uh, Humboldt area breeders. And I just came across this hippie couple that came up to see one of the shows and, uh, they offered to show me their grow and, uh, and uh, hooked me up with some stuff I could bring back to Alaska to share with everybody here. Because one of the things I did when traveling, uh, I smuggled a lot of weed. Hawaii, California, Kentucky, Tennessee. So, yeah, a lot of it, uh, you know, I bring it back here and, and uh, friends would uh, go ahead and get rid of me, get rid of it for me because uh, I didn't sell weed. The problem with me selling weed is, is if I got busted, I didn't just lose my seed stock. I lost everybody's seed stock. So I tried to be, at, you know, as careful as I could with with uh, what I was tr entrusted with. I mean, some of those people are gone today, and I ask their relatives to this day, you know, can I? 
go ahead and and you know reuse this strain this used to be your uncle's or your or your father's or your grandfather's uh can i reintroduce this it you have a problem with that and mo almost none of them have i did notice in california there was really no interest in seeds uh when i tried to reintroduce them years ago i went to the redwood run for for almost 40 years and uh tried to reintroduce uh, some of the seed stock or just give them back uh, here's these genetics. I got these from your grandpa, your father, aunt, uncle, etc. And they just weren't interested. They say, hey, dude, we do everything from established clones here. We know what works here. And I'm like, okay, I'm just telling you, I got the seed stock from your, your folks and I've kept it all these years. If you want it, it's yours. And they're like, nah, hang on to it. It's yours. Wow. I think there's probably a lot of people who are like, wishing they could have traded places that like you know kudos to you for for restraining yourself in that conversation and just being able to be like well you don't know what you don't know yeah i you know it it's sad because there there is a lot of stuff that got lost because i can only collect so much myself you know i know what i liked and what my friends liked you know we all have our group that that we have our sessions with that that we enjoy uh, cannabis with. And then we have uh, another extension of people that we give uh, pot to or share with because they have ailments or certain things going on. And uh, to lose some of those things that are, that have been out there for, for years, I think was, you know, the biggest crime that was committed uh, during the whole pot prohibition was losing all those things that could have been beneficial. Um, you know, all pot is medicinal. I tell everybody that if it makes you feel good, that's medicinal. If it changes your mindset, that's medicinal. Uh, it's just my personal opinion. Yeah, no, I can, I can greatly get on board with that. So that's really interesting to hear that. Just to quickly loop back, you, you'd mentioned a few other states you'd been to and brought some cannabis back from. Over the years, did you ever get a chance to see the Fablewood? Because you mentioned Kentucky. So I was wondering, did you see Kentucky bluegrass, which is a, a somewhat well-known strain at all? You know, un, under that name, I couldn't tell you, but I, I probably have in, in, my, in, my, uh, in my bank probably about eight uh, strains left from Kentucky, older strains. A lot of it's red hair and stinky, uh, you know, a lot of skunks, uh, that, that don't exist anymore, but some of those folks, I, I can't get in touch with, uh, I haven't, you know, I don't know what happened to them over the years. So some things I'm reluctant to release, uh, simply because I don't know how it'll affect, uh, people that might still be growing it and, and their ability to regenerate it which is what I do. I, I regenerate things. Uh, I do the best I can with what I have. Um, so it doesn't get lost, but I regenerate the seeds and, and try and keep them viable. But in that process, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm not perfect. And, uh, some things can get lost with parents. You know, if, if you're a breeder and you don't choose or select the exact, uh, you know, or as close to, what you're looking for in the plant that everybody loves, you can inadvertently change it without trying to do so. And I, you know, challenge any breeder to keep 10 strains for one year and try not to try not to change anything about 
them from the original donors, both parents, both, you know, your original uh, parent lineage. It's, it's, it's a task, you know? So like I said, uh, my currency is time more than anything. And karma, you know, if you don't keep a good karma while you're doing all this, uh, what I've seen, uh, when especially when it's associated with all about the money, that bad things seem to happen. And, and bad things happen to good people in those situations. So you got to keep a clear head and, uh, you know, just be practical. Just be a farmer. Yeah, some really wise words there. I can definitely get on board with that. Try to keep track of the karma meter. I would love to quickly run this idea by you um, because we hear it a lot in the community as a general sentiment. Do you believe that there was only ever one roadkill skunk or do you think it was a profile that actually occurred in maybe a few different strains and people are just noticing that? I th- I think there could be a myriad of, of road kills. I see it within, uh, with what I've released as an IBL. Uh, there's, I'm down to seven, uh, um, male plants now that I use for open pollination. So, uh, the last time I did, I had 11, uh, but I had went through a series of the last couple of years. wasn't so kind to me as far as, uh, illnesses and health. Uh, so, um, during that time, uh, my help, I had to have help for a long time. Uh, my, my health came and went. So in that process, I lost some, uh, some male donor plants, parent plants for the IBL. And, uh, so I had to create new ones out of seed stock that I have. So it's changed a bit, even doing that. That's why I said I challenge anybody to try and keep the original stock. All you can do is do the best you can with what you're given. I mean, there's, Probably if somebody has a large enough facility and they run enough uh, phenos, they they can keep and preserve exact replicas, especially doing tish, tissue culture. I'm not much of a feminized guy. I, I used to do rotalization, which is when the plant gets older, it'll it'll self-germinate itself. And I I was a big believer in that and trying to preserve an original mother plant that I may have been losing, just let her go to flower, let her rotalize and let her uh, self-pollinate and basically an S1 just to keep that gene pool intact. But, you know, I'm no scientist. I just do the best I can with what I, I've learned over the years. Some people, when they start talking uh, pot or breeding or preserving strains uh, with me, they get kind of Uh, I I go over their head a little bit. I don't mean to. It's just this has been my passion for, uh, you know, as long as I've been alive. Since I was a teenager, this is what I did. My first job was with uh, Matt Nuska uh, Thunderfuck. I took an ad in the paper to go clean some some buses. I didn't know what it entailed. I met this old biker dude, and he said... uh, now I'm raising Hawaiian fighting dogs in these buses back here, but I got something else going on. Can you keep your mouth shut? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, he said, I'll pay you well, but you have to promise me you'll keep your mouth shut. And I said, okay, no problem. What he wanted done was I had to clean dog shit out of this school bus that he raised these Hawaiian fighting dogs in. And the other buses had Matt Nuska Thunderfuck in them. And I had to... Uh, keep those uh, plants going and call any males 
and in the um, smaller plants as they were showing. So he showed me all of that, and uh, that was a summer job for me. And after a while, he got to trust me so much that uh, I I was able to get original genetics from him too. Wow, what a what an introduction! Was that your first sort of um, hands-on experience with growing? That was my first hands-on experience with, uh, yeah, just even working with a pot plant, uh, knowing what was going on with it. Uh, I didn't I didn't know I was going to go be cleaning uh, school buses with dog shit and <laughs> and uh, pot plants in them, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a uh, a real uh, education. Uh, he was up in Anchorage, and I was up there for the summer with. Uh, with my father when I was younger and uh, I needed a job during the day. My dad said, go get a job. So I went and got a job and that's, of course, I didn't tell him what I was doing. <laughs> Good man. You kept your word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I totally kept my word. Yeah. I learned a lot from that old biker. That's great. Look, so many questions to ask. Tell me a bit about the Matanuska Thunderfuck. It's one of those ones where like everyone knows the name and has heard of it, but it's hard to get clear descriptions about like the smells, the flavors, the the overall effect. Yeah, it's you know it's a good stone. Uh, you know, um, a heady stone um, gets you uh, you know in the place you want to be. Uh, not debilitating. Um, has a lot of uh, pain killing and uh, you know let you sleep fairly easy so I, I want to say that there has to be a certain extent of uh, uh, Afghani and the original uh, crosses that I was working with but mostly sativa I would say it was a um, probably a 60 40 on the sativa side but without having genetics or testing I couldn't tell you exactly and then looking at the plants, um, they would throw sometimes narrow leaf, sometimes wide leaf. So you could see the, the mix in there. So it was a true hybrid. Uh, back in the day when, um, when I was working with this plant, I actually talked the guy in to let me uh, make seeds because he believed if he was going to get the plant to someone else so they could, uh, they could grow it, he did something called grafting. And he would he would take a, a another plant and graft on the Matanuska Thunderfuck and get it to this other guy, and then you would think that those genetics would somehow mix in that plant or something. But that's how he liked to do it. He cut a little notch in the in the plant. He he notched both plants, and then would wrap it up with some poultice that he didn't share with me, and then bandage it up, and then he'd have me set them off to the side and and i would take care of these things until they were ready to uh to go to one of his pals now it was a way for him to get the actual plant to someone else that was going to grow it to for commercial value they were all bikers and and so you know i like i said i kept my mouth shut pretty much up until now and i still kept my keep my mouth shut about names and who they are um you know in th in this game forever uh, name dropping was a no-no you just you just didn't do it and um so that's that's what i did i i still do that to this day um there's a lot of people that get upset about me because they want to know who original breeder was and especially if it's a biker or a club biker 
I'm never throwing that name out there. I'm never throwing that affiliation out there. That's nobody's business but my own. I mean, running with that thread, one of the sort of general lines of discussion you hear in the cannabis community is that many of the old school clones that are now sort of fable did have their roots in the biker scene. Do you think that's true? Were the bikies sort of reasonably involved in the cannabis scene over the years? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, with with uh, with uh, clubs, you have the ability to have a clubhouse and and uh you know you're protecting your clubhouse and you have uh basically a sanctuary where you're not letting the general public in anyway or uh law enforcement usually has to get a warrant to to blow the doors down and so uh you know that system of being able to um move things around uh clandestinely and uh closed mouth people uh, yeah, a lot of genetics uh, stayed viable and around because of uh, what was available within that with that in that system. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't, you know, um, it, it's just mainly a culture within a culture. You know, you had the counterculture um, and then you had us bikers. You know, I, I never called myself a hippie. I was always impressed by. You know, I still think to this day, every, every time I look at what's going on today, I go, yep, the hippies were right again. I could never be one, but I, I really respected uh, their their attitude and what they did and and uh, their resolution to everything, peace and love and 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 all that. I just uh, that wasn't me. I didn't live in that world. So I, I kind of kept to myself. No, that. <laughs> that's good i think we need people from all sort of different corners to ultimately be represented so let's jump back into some of the rks stuff because i know that a lot of people are keen to hear about it so we may as well bash out some of the sort of uh, more pressing questions i think that are on people's minds fairly recently on the show we had uh, todd mccormick come on as a great episode and he uh spoke about his friendship with you and and some of the seeds he'd got off you and, and he vouched for your seeds he said hey the rks home he's got it's real deal he said you just you might have to hunt through a few seeds to find it but he said that you you could probably refine it to be a little more louder but it was definitely there Right. What are your thoughts on that? Is that how you would describe it to someone who comes to you and says, hey, I want to find, you know, that nostril flaring roadkill skunk? Right. Well, you know, that's a big, big controversy. And, and uh, when I originally agreed to release it, uh, Todd was one of the people that I always respected for his sacrifice and his dedication to this plan over the years. And um, I... I reluctantly released the IBL because I thought that would release a wider variety for somebody to work with. Yet the inside of the IBL, there's definitely the heavy stinkers all the way down to, uh, you know, some people have reported uh, not having uh, the heavy scent or any skunk scent at all. Um, sometimes I've replaced those because I knew the people and I knew they weren't BSing me, but you're going to find that with phenos that across the board, especially when you're using 11 male donors. And I, I never work with less than 130 female plants. So um, 
yeah, it's it it's hard to uh, pin it down, but I I pinned it down. It's just like I I told Todd if I released, you know, the absolute stinker, you know, what kind of price point do you put on something like that? Because you can only release it once, and then everybody's knocking it off immediately, and and then they're calling it something else, and I put in uh, 15 years of work on getting up to where it's at right now. And do I just want to just throw it out there? Um, you know, and everybody said it was too expensive to begin with uh, when I originally set it out there and Todd took it F2 to it and then released it um, and, you know, dropped the price down. So it was more uh, readily available. I'm not a seed bank. I'm not a big, guy i'm i'm just uh holding on to genetics and and uh doing the best i can and to be honest with you i i, I told you um how i made a living at it was backing up growers and uh, other people that were saying they were breeders i would sell them i i would go to shows and bring them uh six or seven different strains that they were getting directly from me but like i say my business and and the people that I hung out with, you don't name drop, you know. Uh, so I, I've always believed in open source genetics. I don't, because uh, that I, anything less, I'd just be a hypocrite. That's how I live my life. I would get these uh, genetics and sometimes for nothing, just to preserve them. And so for me not to share them or, you know, um, I'm not trying to, to get rich or, or anything. I, I just don't want to give something away. I have grandchildren that I hope that someday that maybe they'll pick this up and run with it when it's uh, fully legal and there is no worries like there is today. I mean, globally, it still hasn't been resolved in, in my opinion. Uh, and, and a lot of people are left hanging because of that. And like I said, if it ever gets back to how it was, I mean, that's going to be a total tragedy, but I could see it moving that way if governments aren't making the kind of money that they want to make off of it. Those days are gone. That's what I tell most of my friends. Those days of, of making all that money and, and uh, living the lifestyle that you were, they're, they're gone for good. But fortunately, a lot of the strains aren't because there's a few crazy guys like myself have hung on to things. Yeah, you know what? It's it's so interesting that you touch on that topic about like those days are gone because I I feel like I have that conversation with people more and more. You know, you hear people talking about how producers who used to produce the best quality herb are getting out of the game. And I always just say like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you can't make like 30K off your crop every three months anymore. It's not like that. But you know, you look at other farmers, they're not making any wind, like, you know, someone growing corn or whatever, like they don't grow that sort of money. And and I feel like there's this sort of underlying entitlement. And I try to explain, look, like, yeah, the, the reason why you got paid that in the past was because of the very real threat. And to a large degree, you know, there's less threat depending on where you're based. Um, and they don't seem to understand exactly. that like, that's where that price was coming from, was from the threat. Um, and now that that's gone, that's the price is dropping. Would you say that over time, cannabis will become like corn in the sense that like it'll just become like an everyday farmer sort of income? I'm sure of it. And, and the people that continue on uh, will do it for the love of farming and for the love of the plant. 
and and you know the culture and the and mystique that went behind this plant uh for all these ages i mean um i saw all this stuff from the 60s 70s 80s 90s now now we're up into 2000s and i'm still seeing stuff every day if you keep your eyes open and you appreciate things for what they are um you don't miss every because just myself i I can only keep so much alive uh, and preserved that, that I loved and my friends loved and, and uh, some friends profited from, um, but there's, you know, there's no way that any one person can, can keep a lot of things together for a long period of time. And I, I'm slowly learning that. And, and I lose stuff every day just because I can't do what I used to do. I used to do up to 1200 plants in rotation, you know, every, every year, uh, three different cycles and, and try and keep the, the seeds regenerated. So they were, somebody wanted them. They were viable. They germinated right away. Uh, they were good, strong genetics and they were as close to or equal to what people remember them being. So, um, like I said, without uh, DNA testing or, or um, actual genetic testing, it, it's hard to say, you know, um, when you're getting from different sources. I try to source things myself from the regions I go to. And for years, that was my vacation, go somewhere. And, and, uh, and, and it was my job too. get strains from me. You know, some people go to the bar and, and, after work, I'd go look for cannabis seeds and, uh, you know, you get, you get them from the strangest, uh, uh, sources. And sometimes some of the best people that you ever want to meet, you got in some really scary, crazy situations, even for me being a biker. Um, I can tell you a lot of times I'm like, man, is this guy going to kill me? Uh, you know, I, a pig farmer comes to mind, you know, and, uh, you know, he talks some crazy stuff, but man, he had the best weed in the world. And I, you know, that I'd seen to that day. And I, I just wanted that strain that he had. So, you know, to, uh, to get it, I had to put myself in a situation that I probably wouldn't do today. <laughs> Don't mean to ramble on, but it's, it's been a long, strange trip. And yeah, dead shows were really good for them. I'm a deadhead. And, uh, those shows were, were a blast. I thanks to the hippies and deadheads everywhere, but I, I wasn't much of a dancer and standing in the middle of 30,000 people jumping up and down and dancing is a real experience that, you know, I wish everybody could experience because it, it does change your heart as a person. I was pretty callous after coming out of the military and, and, uh, you know, a lot different person than I am today. It was a lot harder biker. Uh, but you know, cannabis and, uh, uh deadheads pretty much changed my life for me. For the positive. Yeah, that's beautiful to hear. You're sort of echoing the sentiment. Almost every guest on the show has said, I think that's probably one of the most uh, unknown things to the general public is how much of a contribution the Grateful Dead played to cannabis over the past 40 years. Oh, yeah. Shakedown Street. You could get every, anything you wanted on Shakedown Street. And um, a lot of people, you know, my alias, I'm Chiba. A lot of people knew my alias as that crazy guy that's looking for seeds and is willing to pay. So I got scammed a lot, but I got some great genetics uh, on Shakedown Street, too. 
That's great. I love it. So if we link back to sort of some of the details of the answers you've given already, you talk about how you've had quite decent plant numbers in terms of your when you're creating seed, but I know at the same time you're not exactly operating on scale. So it's sort of like you've got a relatively small to medium scale setup but lots of plant numbers in there right how do you how do you find it is navigating that because i think for a lot of people they get quite scared by the idea of how many plants you have in that space right well i i was uh, pretty lucky on on having remote property and then people that were interested in making their living by selling uh unseeded weed that we would grow side by side with with uh, my seeded plants. So to enlist those people um, to help me with my work, which is pretty extensive when you're growing 1200 plants on your own, it's almost impossible uh, to get two or three people to help me with that work uh, during the summer season was a godsend. So um, I, I had some remote cabins and a large lodge to work in and pretty much, uh, so so remote that uh, we never hardly ever saw anybody there. Uh, Canadian miners would stop by every once in a while, and uh, uh, I was amazed at how closed mouth they were about everything and uh, non judgmental. Uh, you know, a bottle of whiskey bought uh, a mile of uh, zipper on their on their mouth. You know, so uh, or or just having cigarettes around, or you know, it, it was. Uh, you know, somebody wasn't into pot, they were always into something else. So they, they pretty much kept quiet about things. And we, we only had uh, real trouble one time um, that I can remember in all those years. So yeah, it's, it, it's not easy to do anything outside of, uh, of your own home, large scale. And as far as breeding, I, I wouldn't recommend, you know, unless you have large outbuildings, and you can do isolation work and you can isolate your males. You can isolate clones that you might bring in from someone else to work with that genetic material. Unless you have specific build outs, uh, rooms to, uh, separate, separate and segregate, uh, your plants and your plant stock and your strains, then you're doing yourself and everyone else a disservice by trying to breed under those circumstances. So like I said, I got lucky, but there were people profiting off of what I did. I just, I wasn't interested in that. And no one could understand uh, my preoccupation with seeds, even myself, probably. Um, I would I would compare myself to a crazy collector that you might see on, uh, on uh, one of those television programs that these guys go through, the, some, a hoarder, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but in my instance, they're walking through all these plants going, why is all your weed seeded? Are you nuts? So, I mean, I got that for years, for most of my life. So uh, the transition to all of a sudden people are interested in things like uh, Acapulco Gold and Panama Red. I'm like, have you even tried it? I mean, it looked like skanky weed back in the day. It's, uh, you know, bunk compared to to what you think of as great weed you're showing me you're telling me there's a lot of weed snobs where i live right here in 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 alaska and i might have created that problem because over the years they've they've had access to some things that people will never see in a lifetime 
So to be able to smoke that kind of weed, uh, you know, generates a certain type of, of person over time. I can't apologize for it either. <laughs> <laughs> I envy those people. Gosh, I, I, so there's some weird parallels there. You got me thinking about my brother who's like, only a very casual weed smoker and I, I try to explain to him i'm like dude you understand like the shit i'm giving you like no one gets can try this like <laughs> exactly exactly that's cool okay so it sounds like you're quite a fan of open pollinating is that the primary method in which you choose to breed and is there any degree of sort of selection around the males or it's just like a, everything stays and does its thing no when uh only when i'm doing ibls do, does that happen um, when I'm breeding, I breed, if I'm going to bring something to an F5, uh, I'll back cross it a couple of times. Um, I'm I'm looking for traits. Um, I'm looking for recessive traits. I'm looking for traits that, that I want to keep in the plant. And, um, to do that, uh, that selection, I keep away from everybody else at, you know, uh, especially when I was, uh, having people growing commercial weed right alongside what I'm trying to do. They knew certain rooms are off limits to them because I didn't want an introduction of, uh, of a pollen from a male room. I didn't want to have, uh, you know, cross pollination. I didn't want to have any, any kind of issues. So, um, I, you know, I've been called an asshole more than once over, over my protocols with, uh, with having people grow for me and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, had, quite a few people quit, you know, saying, you know, just way too strict. I had to loosen up and smoke more of what I'm growing. And, uh, but uh, to, to do it right. And to, to, to keep it um, for the future. Uh, I mean, the future for me is now just making sure that it goes to um, family and, and friends that a lot of these things can be carried on and shared with everybody else. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have the uh, the health and uh, and uh, longevity. Um, no one lives forever, and I've been pushing the limits. Um, you know, to keep keep these things in a in a box would be a crime, and I've always said that. You know, everybody says, "Well, what are you going to do with all those damn seeds?" You know, you've got you know. For a long time, I used to feed old seeds to chickens, and. I, <laughs> Yeah, then one friend talked me out of it, and he started a seed uh, a seed bank and a business out of it. And I go, well, maybe I just ought to hang on to those old seeds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a reason why you thought you shouldn't give them to the chickens. <laughs> well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, so are there any specific sort of traits or what you might consider to be like telltale signs that you look for in a male that you think oh that's like usually a sign of a good male you know i i've tried to tell every i've i've mentored a lot of different growers uh some of them are on instagram some of them uh um personally here at home and uh the first thing i look for in a seedling when it pops up is that it develops like trichome hairs on it or it doesn't. So a shiny leaf, usually that phenol, I'll eliminate it right away. I'll start out with a, a thousand seedlings and pretty quickly get down to a hundred. Um, the same thing goes with the male. When I start turning a male, I'm looking for it to actually produce its trichomes early. 
and have a resinous coating on the stock itself. Uh, so a lot of a lot of people have said, well, your weed gets me. I don't want to go to the dispensary because your weed gets me stoned more than, you know, and even though it's seeded than, than anything at the dispensary. I'm like, well, if we don't support these people, then we're going to lose legalization. So, um, you know, I can still give you stuff, but not in the, not in the amounts that I have before. And, and uh, please support those people. I'm doing this to breed um, not, not to, not to sell specifically. Um, yeah, it's hard to explain. I sound like a crazy person to myself now. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're on the money. And I think we are really congruent in a lot of our beliefs. I'd love to ask you, you sort of, without directly touching on it, did reference some of the problems with the dispensaries, not just the quality of the dispensaries, which is a problem sometimes, but more importantly, that there seems to be a lack of consumer education occurring at the dispensaries. And we're in this position now where someone walks into a dispensary and they just say, what's got the highest THC percentage? Like that's sort of where we're at. Exactly. How, how do you think we can help move past this and help educate the casual consumer who in all honesty is probably never going to want to learn too much about, you know, the genesis of ChemDog or whatever, you know, they just want to get high. But how do we reach that sort of customer and help keep the legalization fight alive? I think with what you're doing, and I really believe in it, um, and with uh, a really good book, we need a book out there that's as simple as possible. I mean, just as simple as it can possibly be with the best tips on growing the best possible weed. And the best possible weed starts with the best possible genetics you can get your hands on and seeds that are viable. So, like I said before, my motto to everybody has always been since day one, since I started um, moving uh, genetics, moving seeds, was if in doubt, grow it out. If, if you have any doubt about uh, my strains or, or, or what I'm trying to preserve, just grow it out. And then you can give me feedback on on what you're finding, but don't bitch before you've, you've grown it out. Don't buy into the anti-hype. Um, what, what also needs to happen is this needs to become a more positive in my, I know I'm, I don't live in uh, rainbows and fairy tales, but it needs to be more of a positive community where we're aiding each other. Um, you know, kind of the reason I'm doing the podcast, we're teaching the younger generation hey you don't have as many roadblocks or hurdles to go through so concentrate on teaching people about the benefits of cannabis and the benefits of growing your own and the benefits of growing the best you can possibly grow uh turn it into a competitive like i always believe in competitive sports very highly competitive person um turn it into a competitive sport you know who can who can outgrow their their friends and using what genetics things like that um got us to where we're at today and the hippies uh they were they were a huge part in it you know that that whole subculture um god bless them you know if they hadn't kept it alive it would have disappeared and there was a lot of obstacles in the way lots yeah, hugely. I can see that from my perspective when I talk to people like 
can certainly identify in my own journey that it feels as though it's been certainly a lot easier than many of the stories I hear from guests. I just wanted to quickly loop back one moment to the RKS because I think a sentiment that I hear really commonly in the community is people keep saying, look, if, if the RKS really existed, it would be out, we'd all be sharing the clone and like that would be the end of it. It's sort of, I guess the gist of it is like if it exists, it would have been found. What's your thoughts to that sentiment? Well, I don't, I don't particularly know that my roadkill skunk that I, you know, inherited from someone else. They they passed on too. Um, I don't know if it's what people were trying somewhere else. I personally can't remember a smell or taste from a week ago. Maybe yesterday. I could remember a smell or taste specifically, but uh, a week ago, no. So uh, all these years down the road, I will tell you that I was actively, um, you know, supplying people with, with these seeds and with clones up and down the Pacific, up I-5, up and down I-5, the Pacific Northwest corridor, especially, but I'd go all the way to San Diego because I was trading genetics down there years ago too and there was some awfully good genetics that came out of uh san diego especially in the 90s and um you know a lot can be done in full sun that can't be done indoors so you know my hat's off to the gorilla growers that risk uh fires uh law enforcement uh feral animals it was unbelievable uh with somebody in a almost a desert climate was able to produce outdoors just blow me away and of course i wanted any genetics i could i could call from that and um i went out of my way to find them yeah i think we have heard in the past about some mythical strains coming out of san diego so sounds like you're in a the right spot at the right time which is beautiful to hear I wanted to quickly follow up. Um, I had seen on your Instagram that you had crossed what I think is an RKS male to a few different things, like doing outcrosses. Right. And I was interested to hear your thoughts because obviously, you know, a lot of people are keen on the IBL, but I'm interested to hear about the outcrosses because they, I, I think outcrossing is the spice of life to me, you know? Um, so yeah, I noticed specifically you did a Bubba Kush outcross. I'm such a big fan of Bubba Kush. How did that one turn out? And what sort of things do you think RKS brings to the table when you do hybridize it? Well, I, I select actually for like, I, like I did when I, when I'm at probably about an F 13 right now on what I've worked the RKS up to now. And, and that includes eight back crosses, uh, looking for select traits and and it really is um it's a complex uh strain to work with to to find those recessive traits to get rid of some and to amend others um so over time that that was that was a uh, really difficult but i mean i the chem the chem dog that i got from trichome tech in the 90s um, there were a couple of guys in uh, um, kind of central Northern California um, that had an ad in high times. I got their chem dog. I got quite a few different strains from them, um, you know, that I bought online at the time. And uh, I heard that they were really uh, finicky like I was, uh, um, you know, just uh, 
I don't know. You get you get to a point where other people just think you're a mad scientist, and you know, kind of kind of like the Cheech and Chong movie uh, "Nice Dreams," where the the guy down in the pool, uh, his name was Jimmy, you know, and they go in there and uh, ask him a question, and that's all he'd say was "Big Buds," and uh, you kind of get to be that guy, and that's I I got poked a lot of fun at over the years that you know. Cause I had friends come and, you know, getting weed, you know, they're just out trying to, you know, score a bag the best way they could. And the best way they could was, Hey, let's go see if Jim needs a, a hand or, you know, go out there and uh, check out his place. And if he needs a hand with something, maybe we could score some weed. And um, the, the back crosses have been probably like you say, some of the most interesting things that I've, I've done for a while. I didn't know uh, that the roadkill had that potential. Now I've already gotten back from several people uh, seeds um, with their, their crosses with roadkill. Uh, one comes to mind, uh, a blueberry that I recently received from somebody and, and I popped in there, they're going, uh, I could give you results uh, at a later date, but um, everything I've crossed it with uh, turns out to be, a better plant, but it retains a lot of uh, the roadkill uh, skunk scent to it. So even throwing it in into skunk number one, uh, I've I've got uh, skunk number one and super skunk. I threw it into that. I've got Nirvana super skunk. I threw it into that. All it did was accentuate that skunk and make it stronger with with uh, when I'm using the males. Now, when you're using the females and you're crossing to a male of a different uh, parentage, um, you're, you're uh, finding that it's not as heavy on the skunk side. So, so um, you're, not, you're not getting those terps coming through as heavy as if, if you used uh, the male roadkill skunk as a parent, if that makes any sense. Uh, I'm trying to keep them as F1s, but I've, I've sent them out uh, to testers. Uh, four corners of this nation. I uh, use a, a tester, a friend of mine in Maine who's been working with me for years. A uh, friend of mine in Florida, same thing. friend of mine in San Diego and a friend of mine in Seattle, Washington. I also have a friend in Canada um, that's uh, been running a lot of my stuff. And I take everything they give me and try and improve upon it. But the F1s are saying of the uh, roadkill skunk by um, uh, different crosses. I can give you a list of some of the crosses I recently did. And uh, they, they came out phenomenal, but I'm, I guess I'm never happy. Uh, that's the problem about <laughs> uh, being a breeder and having the original uh, genetics to work with. You're never happy with what somebody else says, oh, this is great because you see something that, that no one else does because you've worked with that particular plant for so long. Yeah, look, a true perfectionist. Uh, yeah, to a point that it really irritates a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't apologize uh, for it because it's taken me to here. Uh, but as far as, as, far as uh, uh, breeders using... Uh, my genetics, I, I just, uh, like with Todd's situation, I really respect Todd, um, you know, and, and I like what he's doing. 
and trying to preserve the seeds. But I honestly think it's in his best interest to send things out to test uh, because he'll, he'll grow more as a breeder. And if he learns to take uh, other people's uh, um, objective criticism and, and uh, wherever they're at and they're, uh, they're uh, growing and they, they might not even be as uh, as competent a grower as Todd is, but they they might be better at breeding and finding recessive traits and things that, that he's just not looking for. Certainly. So, um, yeah, on the, the Bubba Kush that you mentioned, I got from uh, a breeder and um, he's in the Southern part of Washington state really well known. I met him on a, on a seed trip. I was in this group and Facebook. It's, you know, that was my introduction to this. Uh, another crackpot guy named Preston white uh, started a seed group. And a lot of people I know to this day on Instagram uh, and they're, they're prolific breeders. Now they started out uh, trading genetics. And I, that's all I did was just trade genetics, try and get some of this stuff out there um, that I, I thought was just going to disappear otherwise, but they were really interested in it and they were really interested in crossing using, using those strains to cross with uh, a friend of mine in Michigan. Um, he's a good guy. He uh, he's got a company called 517. He has used a, a lot of these, uh, these older strains and crossed them to newer stuff some of the hype stuff that I, I'm not familiar with and I, I don't have the wherewithal to uh, to preserve them because I've got so much in my uh, library as it is. So um, uh, on your Instagram feed, I saw that there was Mac Crossroad Kill Skunk. Is this where that project came from? You know, yeah, that, that was, you know, and th this is a recent project too. The, the Mac uh, really kind of blew me away because it doesn't accept pollen very well. Yeah, yeah. I think actually, funny you mentioned that, just a few days ago, some studies came out showing that Mac is one of the few true polyploidy plants out there. So it's effectively, as you said, yeah, incapable. I mean, obviously you can make crosses with it if you really force it, but generally speaking, as you said, doesn't want to take pollen. Oh, yeah. A lot of trifolate on it, um, on on the Mac, uh, and uh, to get it to pollinate, I had to use six different. Uh, I finally found the right male that it would accept pollen from. Wow! From the wow. RKS, and uh, yeah, I'm currently working on that, uh, trying to trying to get it to be more stable. Uh, but the results are alarmingly great. Um, <laughs> the reports last uh, summer from the 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 F ones that that I sent out uh, were just great, and 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 I thought so too. Um, when I grew it out unseeded, I'm like, oh wow, this is this is really good stuff. Um, I don't want to take somebody's genetics without their authorization and and release it to anybody, so I didn't. And I've I've kind of you know until I run into that fellow with the fake beard at at. Uh, the Emerald cup again, or one of the shows, then, uh, then I, I would, I wouldn't even, uh, think about releasing it unless I got his approval and I'd make sure he got seed stock first. I think cap's a pretty reasonable guy and he would probably take you up on that offer. Yeah. I, I don't know him, but I'm just saying, you know, um, 
that's what I do. You know, I just, I preserve stuff. And then I, then I work with stuff that I really like, but I was still really surprised that, um, some of my more resilient, um, male, uh, donors for, uh, pollen were not accepted by this, uh, caps cut that I, I, uh, sourced. And, um, you know, I was just blown away by its production by not seeding it. So I thought this is one that I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, and push forward. Um, another friend of mine, Antonio Diaz, great guy, met him on this, uh, group, uh, the seed trading group, uh, that Preston White, uh, started. He, uh, created a, uh, a strain called La Mula and it was just out of this world. So I had to to add the roadkill skunk to that and uh, trying to dial that in right now, the F ones, they're just producing mad, but the yields are really low on it. And it was more of a diesel-y plant, had the real strong diesel terps, but you add that to RKS and uh, honestly, roadkill skunk just pales in comparison as to the skunk terps that are thrown out there from that added diesel. Wow. Okay. So that could be the real combo is like a real fuely gassy in combo with the RKS. Right. I, I hadn't, you know, I did, uh, I took uh, Soma's New York city uh, diesel and I crossed it to roadkill skunk and that also produced some awesome F ones that I, that I recently released. Um, just, uh, just blew me away that, um, that diesel, uh, was actually a fuel for the, the skunk terps, you know, just kicked it up a notch, um, even more than, uh, where I've gotten my F 13 roadkill skunk. I'm like, well, this, this stinks heavier. I mean, it's a, it lingers in the room. Yeah. I mean, if you wipe the walls, you're, you're getting that perspiration from the plant and you go outside and it stinks to high heaven. So, that's really interesting to hear because I could see that you have worked with some other modern genetics in the past, specifically uh, the driving rain, which uses Sunset Sherbet, Bruce Banner, Purple Afghani. It sort of made me wonder, was there anything specifically that stimulated you to think, you know what, I'm going to do a cross with some more modern stuff? Because I think largely it's um, probably one of the only crosses you offer that doesn't have quite a... Uh, what's the word, um, a provenance to it, you know, like a very long established sort of history. Was there anything that stimulated you to do that one? Uh, you know, a friend of mine wanted a Sherbert. So I went in search of a Sherbert. I got my hands on uh, uh, a, sun, a sunset Sherbert uh, cuttings in Fremont, Washington at the uh, High Times uh, Cannabis Cup. And um, guy there had him and you know he said yeah this is a great sherbert but it's not the original sherbert you gotta you gotta try this is called sunset sherbert from this dude i'll call sherbinsky and i said well cool man and uh yeah i'll, I'll buy some clones from you and and I, I brought them home and um you know that cross is epic up here uh driving rain is probably one of the most surprising I would say killer crosses that I've ever created. Uh, it's a beautiful plant. 
the terpenes are, are across the map. Uh, the stone, uh, I think because of Dark Horse's genetics in there, the Bruce Banner number three that I used, it was, it was a bomber. Um, yeah, I wasn't into polys and I wanted to try my hand at, uh, poly hybrids because, uh, my belief and, and a lot of others beliefs with, if you use any more than, uh, one indica or one sativa or two sativas or two indicas as a hybrid, you're, you're going to breed out resiliency. Um, some of the, um, um, environmental factors that, a that, a a, a strong genetic plant brings to the table or a land race, something that's been grown by people for generations as food or medicine. And uh, once you breed out of that, then you're going to lose uh, some of uh, the stability of the plant itself. Here, I, that, that particular cross is one of my favorites as far as what it's done to help people medicinally. I mean, I know personally two cancer survivors here that grew it out and, and it's had wonderful results for them locally. Uh, and, and they swear by it and they keep, you know, uh, growing that particular strain. Um, so, you know, as far as what it's done and uh, it outproduced my wildest imagining on, on polyhybrids and it kind of changed my mind on uh, polyhybrids because that particular plant even though it's more sativa leaning outside our growing season ends in october it'll finish before october outside up here even in a rainy environment with no uh powdery mildew so the strains that i used in there seem to retain their strength and vigor and pass on uh some of their ability with the environmental stresses to uh stand the test of time so it's strange for me yeah it's funny you bring that up because i don't i don't really advertise it that much because uh it's been so great locally i should have made more uh more f1s of that it looks like a killer on paper it sort of caught my eye so i thought yeah that that seems like a good one to talk about out of curiosity was there any specific reason you thought that purple afghani would pair well with that sort of more modern combo to tell you the honest truth, that purple Afghani is one of the first that I personally sourced um, in Afghanistan myself. Wow. Um, yeah, I almost got in trouble for that uh, particular plant, but uh, I happened to glean the, the seeds off the plant and uh, and uh, tell a few fibs to get myself back to where I had to be and uh, uh, back to the States with them. So, um, yeah, that that Afghani has thrown a, uh, a blue tint into everything that I've grown, um, and bred with, I've bred towards certain things. It, I bred a blueberry years and years ago here, uh, 40 years ago. Uh, we have a blueberry festival here. So somebody was like, Hey man, why don't, why don't you have a, a blueberry pot? I said, well, you know, I'll work. That's a good idea. I'll work towards that. And um, that was one of the things I used. But you cut the plant, uh, some, uh, sorry if I'm rambling on, but some Colombians and Mexicans will bleed uh, a red. Well, this purple Afghani bleeds purple and it will stain anything. I mean, it actually stains the blood from that plant will stain uh, clothing, fabric, uh, paper, linen. Uh, but 
as far as a breeding stock, it brings a blue, beautiful lavender tint to anything I put into it. And that's what I was trying to bring out when I added it in with that uh, sunset sherbet, because it already had that lilt already. It had that uh, uh, lavender vibrancy, but I didn't think it was deep enough. So I added that and uh, that brought it up a notch. And the Bruce Banner, uh, to be quite honest with you, a lot of my strains were medicinal for people here. And uh, um, I told a local dispensary owner that I was adding this Bruce Banner, I added it to gr uh, Green Crack, and that's just been a stellar, stellar, stellar uh, plant. Uh, both, uh, they sell it uh, commercially in their dispensary, got the seeds from me and have been growing it out. And a skunk by Bruce Banner uh, has been available locally here too, and it's been a knockout success. Uh, so I wanted to increase, uh, people get to a certain point where pot doesn't get them stoned anymore. And if they're using it for medicine, if it's not getting them stoned, they begin to look for something else. And they, they said, you know, I love these strains. Can you take these strains and, and make them a little stronger somehow? And I said, well, I'll try my best. And, and I think I know a strain, you know, at the time, Dark Horse um, had produced, uh, you know, it was fairly new. The Bruce Banner number three was coming out as the most stable. So I used it. And, and uh, it actually increased the THC level where people were just uh, going nuts. So, you know, they wanted to grow their own. And that was actually before um, legalization. We've been legal in Alaska since 1975. Raven versus Alaska, if, if anybody wants to look it up. Uh, we we won the rights to legalization. Uh, different administrations have tried to, to make it legal, illegal, but... Alaska's constitution, and that was the key, kept it legal in Alaska since 1975, no matter what the efforts of prohibitionists was to change that fact. So even uh, if you just brought that up in court, along with the government having a medicinal patent on marijuana, uh, pretty much you won every court case that you had the, uh, the nuts and the, and the money to go to court with. Yeah, definitely a definingly unique characteristic of Alaska. Uh, just to sort of follow up on what we've been talking about, I was curious, are there any modern strains that do impress you? It sounds like, largely speaking, you enjoy the more old world strains, but does anything strike you as, as special or as unique as maybe, say, the roadkill? You know, the roadkill is... It's just a special strain period. Um, it, it takes you back and makes it, it's basically a time traveling strain, what I call several of these strains, because the unique effect is to bring you back to that time and place where you're drive, driving down the road, listening to BTO, taking care of business, and uh, you were all that back in, in the day again. Uh, except, you know, in actuality, you're an old fat man and you're cruising down the road in an old truck. So, um, yeah, for, for those, those specific things that I look for, um, I'm not looking for a time travel weed. I'm, I'm looking for a spatial weed that, that takes you out there and then lets you down, uh, fairly easy towards the end of the day. So 
I'm 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 really uh, working with sativas a lot right now from uh, Colombia and Mexico, uh, trying to find that one specific hybrid uh, that'll do that again. I used to have in my stable a couple, and um, Punta Rojo comes to mind. That that were an all day stone, you know, pretty much, you know, you, you, the fabled three hour high that you could, you know, kick around town and do everything you wanted to do, but still be a uh, uh, high with a with a positive outlook. So anything that does that for me, and somebody turns me on to it, I'm investigating. I start to disseminate it, take it apart, uh, figure out how it grows. Um, somebody tells me about a specific stone like that that's what i'm after um personally and for people that um medicinally and that's how i got it i lost two wives to cancer and and uh, those strains when i was growing them out that helped them to uplift them to uh give them a normal day without opiates uh to uh help raise my children uh, to be, bring a level of happiness uh, to them uh, in, you know, in the process of death that, you know, there's no higher calling for cannabis in my opinion, in my personal opinion, and in my uh, experience with it. I mean, I had, I had police in Washington state come to my house, ready to kick down the door because somebody reported, you know, smelling a grow at this house and, I, I was in the in the yard in handcuffs. My wife was upstairs and uh, she'd lost all her hair from uh, chemo. And uh, I told him, I said, look, officer, before you go in, you're going to go in and take my wife's medicine. And I'm serious about this. She's, you know, stage four. Um, you know, she's been told that there's not much left for her. She's just trying to be here for our little children. So just. Uh, tread carefully. I'll go with you and tell you anything you want. You can have all my stuff. I can tell you right where my grow is uh, downstairs in my garage. Uh, just, you know, be careful with what's there and uh, be respectful. And, and he went in the house, saw my wife, talked to my wife, tipped his hat, walked out, came unlocked my cuffs. And this is when it was still super illegal. There was no compassion or anything. He says, you know, we didn't find anything in there. He says, you have a great day. I'm sorry to have bothered you, but I had to investigate this and I have to fill out my report now. And I'll just say that there was use going on, but I didn't personally see it. And that's where it ended. And uh, to this day, I've never been able to thank that guy, but, uh, you know, that's the kind of positive stuff that, that I like to see behind cannabis. Um, you know, what it does to help other people is way beyond anything that I'm personally doing. I don't have any aspirations or, or, you know, financial aspirations or otherwise. I, I'm just a crazy old guy that's uh, preserved a bunch of strains and, and work with uh, what I can to help other people. And to me, I made good money at doing what I did for a living as a commercial diver and a uh, and a um, union electrician that I could support my family just off of that. What I, what I did otherwise, just a crazy hobby that no one could really quite figure out. They're like, well, you don't sell pot, but you 
help people with seeds and you give seeds away and what's all that about? And I, you know, I really could never tell anybody. This is probably the most I've ever talked about it outside of a few friends here that know me. Oh, what a really personal and touching story. You know, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think you really hit the head of the problem of our community, which is, yeah, sometimes I think we lose sight of what the real utility of this plant is, which is to help us all get through life a little bit easier. If you are willing to discuss it, are there any strains you have that if someone listening was a little bit unwell themselves, you might recommend from your catalog that might be what you feel is particularly medicinal? Well, because of, because of the profile that's left in it, the 1974 Matt Niska Thunderfuck is one of the best because it has the CBD still in the plant, the CBG, um, the THCV. It hasn't been bred out. Um, it's been, you know, as, as much as I could, kept it as close as possible. The Maui Wowie is at an F18. Um, it's, it's, about, it's about as, as uh, original as, as they come. My Concha Cambodian, uh, it's a really good uh, Cambodian that, like I said, it, it has a, the THC and CBD. It's not a really high uh, soaring uh, like a Thai, but it's a heavy enough stone. And uh, I think it's a, essential to people's uh, mental well-being. It really uh, brings uh, about a, uh, a calming effect, uh, you know, um, I have a, a strain called uh, FOB, which is forward operating base. I created it specifically for people with PTSD, uh, you know, fellow veterans. And, and uh, you know, you'd be surprised uh, how many people have PT, PTSD were never veterans, uh, but life experiences, trauma, um, you know, uh, so a range of crimes that were committed against people, uh, just even growers you know, that have spent years like myself, there's only a certain amount of crazy people that can stay locked up in uh, little rooms, growing plants for all these years, waiting for, you know, a gun at your back of your head or your door to be kicked in or, um, you know, that, that mentality, you need something that is going to help you every day. And uh, that's what I created uh, FOB for. Um I've, I've made that available as much as I can to, to anybody that needs it. Um, a chocolate tie that I picked up um, years ago um, down in California is one of those uh, tie strains that um, really helps with uh, anxiety, uh, mental fatigue. A lot of people are, are just worn out. It's helped a lot of my friends uh, just recently with uh, everything going on from COVID lockup to just even wearing a mask, you know, they tell me, Hey, I have to go out with this damn thing, uh, everywhere. If I smoke some of that chocolate tie, I'm cool. I don't lose it. I'm not too high. I don't have any anxiety and I can get done what I need to get done while wearing that mask. Um, Mastodon, um, is a, uh, very sedative, um, indica plant. It's a combination of two local strains, two growers uh, that, that I inherited their strains are passed on now. So I combined them and called them Mastodon uh, years ago, 20-some um, years ago. 
it's it's a beautiful plant, uh, very gassy, but it's a strong sedative painkiller, and it helps with insomnia and sleep problems. Uh, the cat piss I got in, uh, I originally sourced it in uh, uh, Garberville, but I had to go to San Diego to actually get the cuttings. That was, uh, it was owned by a motorcycle club, uh, priority, uh, proprietary uh, genetics. They didn't want to really release it. They asked me not to release it in its uh, form, but they knew I was breeding. They said, well, you can go ahead and cross it to whatever you want. Just leave our name off of it. Um, so the the cat piss has an effect, a speedy effect. Uh, uh, pick you up, move you throughout the day, uh, get you from point A to point B. That's why it was really popular with uh, the biker culture. And uh, for something like that, when somebody's trying to recover, it just uh, over and above any other strain I've ever seen. Uh, the cat piss crossed with just about anything, picks people up and propels them through the day. It's a really, really good um, strain for recovery, in my opinion. I, I could keep going. <laughs> what I'm picking up is that you're obviously very passionate about old school lines. And I'd be interested to find out what are some of your absolute favorites? Because something I've picked up as a sort of recent trend is that more and more, I feel like there's a wider appreciation for Mexican lines, Acapulco Gold, Punta Rojo, even Colombian, you know, people really, really getting into these strains. Yes. What are some of the most memorable lines in your mind? I love Michoacan. Michoacan is, uh, you know, one of those uh, uh, Mexican strains. Uh, Oaxacan, another uh, Mexican strain. Uh, I have uh, two different uh, um, Oaxacans, uh, Oaxaca is a large district, kind of like a, a state here in the United States, you know, it's a large district. So, um, the Oaxacan that I have comes from a, uh, uh, more of a hill, um, mountainous region, part of Oaxaca. Um, so it, it has uh, THCV and, uh, THC and, uh, CBD in it has some of its original, and and it um, it retains a lot of its uh, um, vigor that it has outdoors when grown indoors, and it's not a super long flowering uh, plant for a sativa dominant. So that Oaxacan, um, yeah, it's 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 been worked a lot, but probably before I got it, probably by you know original cartels. Um, you know, um, basically what built Mexican drug cartels, a lot of people don't know this, was marijuana. That, you know, where before they got into anything else, marijuana was the product of Mexico. Uh, when it crossed the border, it was degraded because they pressed it into bricks and it, and it fermented and got mold in it. And there's a whole lot of chemistry that happened in them bricks. Uh, but if you could source the weed, like I did across the border and actually go to where the growers were, were, were uh, growing the plants. Those Mexican breeders and growers were really knowledgeable and ahead of their time. I mean, uh, we got Sensimilia uh, seedless weed from the Mexican people uh, back in that era. I mean, if 
if it hadn't been for them trying to develop a seedless product to send across the border, um, you know, it, it was just a matter of time before people discovered, wow, we, we get, you know, a better stone and a, and a, and a heavier product if we don't let it seed. But, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due too with, with uh, marijuana and cannabis history. The people that came before us, the people that, that really did the work, and I, I'm a huge believer in putting in the work so your end product uh, meets or exceeds what people are looking for. Yeah. I know it's not a popular thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, one of our listeners, our Patreon supporters, asks, can you ask if he can expand a little bit on his creation, Big Tuna? That stuff looks killer. Big Tuna. Um I, yeah, no, big, big tuna. I, I, I can't really, it's not my creation. So I, I don't want to take credit for it. It's just something I've continued on to this day. And that's a person that uh, created that strain is recently deceased. So, you know, I, I kind of um, hit on some of that um, just recently with, with the relatives on, on what I could do with that strain. And right now they're just kind of, they're not talking about a lot of things. And this seemed to be their least uh, prior priority in life. So um, yeah, sorry not to answer that question. <laughs> it's understandable, you know, more sort of pressing things on their mind at the moment. So you can appreciate that. Obviously we had another fan submitted question, which I'm actually very curious about myself. They said, can you ask Jaime about the poster he's got that says, good for the head, Panama red? Good for the head. Well, you know, there's an old, uh, I don't know if you listen to a lot of music, but there's an old stoner band uh, called Pur uh, Riders of the Purple Sage. Uh, you know, Jerry Garcia played in there for a while. So they had, they had a song called Panama Red. And if you listen to it, you'll hear uh, similar lyrics to that in the song. There you go. So it's like an old sort of Jerry throwback. Well, yeah, with New Riders of the Purple Sage. Um, you know, if I had the albums almost within arm reach, um, you know, I'd grab the album and show you. But, it, uh, yeah, if you just look up uh, New Riders of the Purple Sage, uh, on the front, the artwork is a cover uh, of, of the album is a picture of Panama Red himself, you know. So it's it's a great old song and that, uh, probably that particular post came from that. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. While I was cruising through all the strains you offered, I, I noticed that, uh, Alaskan cannabis case sells just a straight Afghani. And I was curious to know, um, like what's the origins of this Afghani? Is it from Afghani number one or something you collected? Uh, that's, that's a, actually a great story in itself. Uh, I, I went to, Innsbruck uh, for the Winter Olympics, and I ran into a hippie couple that, that was uh, had traveled all the way from India uh, through Afghanistan, and uh, I asked them. You know, we we're we we're back and forth talking. I was a young man and and uh, really interested in sports at the time, and basically there to to uh, you know first Olympics I was able ever able to attend. Uh, just see what's going on there. But I'd run into people that were, that were as interested in marijuana as I was. 
and we're transporting seeds. So they had some uh, pure Afghani um, from an Afghani farmer they stayed with for about a week. And uh, he helped them make some bricks of hash, which they were going from, at that time, Innsbruck, Germany, to somewhere in France. Uh, I, I don't remember where, and I probably wouldn't say if I did, but um, then they, they brought it back to the States. And uh, I actually got in touch with them in California again and, and got picked up some of that black hash that they brought back that they were part of, uh, of making in Afghanistan. Uh, but I kept those uh, seeds uh, forever. Yeah, it's a uh, pure Afghani. You, you would call it a land race, but, um, you know, when it was grown commercially, I don't know if you can call that a land race because somebody's growing it uh, for the production of hash, not not for the plant itself. They're, I mean, they if you, if you saw what they did to the plants, it, you know, it, it's almost abhorrent uh, to us. Because, yeah, that's all about just beating the hell out of the plants and, and the seeds go flying everywhere. And uh, for somebody like me, I've witnessed that a couple of times, once in Morocco and, and another time in Af Afghanistan myself. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah, let me pick these up for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can imagine. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I, I had also noticed um, on your Instagram that you – had grown out some Pakistanis, sort of more recently, in fact. And I, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on it, because I, I, I feel like Pakistanis like a great indica that often gets overlooked because of the fact that Afghanistan's right next to it, and obviously Afghani is right. just incredible in its own right. But yeah, what's your thoughts on Pakistani? Do you think they're a little bit um, underrated? Way underrated. Uh, the Shitral area, uh, the, what you're re referencing to probably... Uh, the uh, purple uh, Pak Pakistani Shitral Kush. Uh, that's a, a river regional area, a very beautiful area. And um, those people take extreme pride in, in their uh, production of hash. Uh, but their, their plants are, are just astounding. Um, you know, the vibrancy of the, the colors of purples that come out of those. And uh, the pr production of trichomes, it, you know, to see them uh, outdoors is, all, you know, it's almost magical. I mean, my my recollections of actually seeing them in that area um, got me kind of hooked on. And that's yeah, you're right. That's something I just worked on recently. So a Pakistani Shitral Kush, I'm, I'm trying to get it um, to an F4 uh, right now. It's at an F3. It's been to testers. I back crossed it once, uh, trying to trying to pull it up to an F4. Um, it, it'll be a be a hard push for me because I've got a lot of other projects going on right now. So that probably be a, a year off before I even think about releasing that. But yeah, it's a beautiful plant. Yeah, look, we'll all have to wait with anticipation. You you almost answered the next question for me, so I'll try to bait it out of you a little more. <laughs> I'm always curious to ask breeders, what is the thing that you're most excited about? Like, what's the next project you're about to start that you're like, oh, man, this one's going to be great? And, um, you know, again, I call myself a, a preservationist, um, but I've really taken to this breeding thing because I've been uh, – lucky and fortunate enough to to be able to access 
all these different genetics and to be able to uh, cross them together um, is just phenomenal. And I've, I've worked extensively with Hawaiian strains, trying to bring back some of the original Hawaiian strains. And um, I'm, I'm uh, working again to, to bring the Haleaka, Haleakala Silver Sword um, up to its, uh, um, it was grown on the backside of Hana, uh, the backside of the Haleakala Crater, um, you know, at a pretty good elevation in the jungle um, by several growers from Lower Nuhiku Road. And um, they're prominent growers. They've been doing it all their lives, uh, basically, since they got back from Vietnam. They didn't even go back. They went back to California long enough to uh, to get discharged from the service, went right over to Hana and became pot growing hermits. And uh, these guys are exceptional. And uh, it's, it's actually my honor to uh, preserve that particular strain and and to bring it back. So that's what I'm trying to do. And uh, they're they're old enough where that's all past. That's not something that they're doing anymore, but they're all behind me and want to know its progress. So that's something I'm, I'm actively working on right now and, and uh, look forward to uh, getting it stabilized. That's really exciting. I think that there would be a, a lot of people interested in that one. I mean, we've we've spoken a lot about indicas, and you you mentioned you've got a, a profound love of sativas. I I too actually really love sativas myself, and I noticed there was a few posts on your Instagram of some sneaky Neville's Hayes slash Neville's Hayes hybrids. And right. Obviously, Todd has sort of made some ripples in the water with his re-releases of Hayes more recently. Do you think that the Neville's Hayes is what you would consider to be one of the, the better representations of Hayes? Or do you think that maybe like an NL5 Hayes is like a better sort of representation in your mind? Well, Neville's Hayes, I, I had the unique opportunity to meet Neville and play chess with him and, and talk to him. And, and I have a different perception of that the man and and his ethos than most people do. Everybody... Uh, degrades to the worst common denominator and uh if you didn't get to know him and know what a kind giving person he was and what an exceptional breeder he was he actually made such an imprint on me that i just continued doing what i was doing and didn't think i was completely nuts for doing so uh because he was he was uh you know making good money doing what he was doing taking a lot of chances uh his family was a hundred percent behind him. Um, he was also in Australia great, great personality. I mean, always outgoing. I didn't see any of the things that some people have, of accused him of. Um, he was an exceptional chess player and I, I beat him once and I was really proud of that. So, um, getting the haze from him, I knew its parents, uh, you know, he had a Northern lights, uh, one, two, and three. He had the hazes were the same thing. He he numbered everything, classified those things the same way, and then made separate crosses of them. I also got Northern Lights number nine from him, which he never really released in a pure form. Uh, it wasn't one of the greatest Northern Lights, but it was uh, unique enough to preserve. So I preserved it, 
And um, yeah, if I ever release that, I'd definitely ask permission from his uh, family. But the Neville's Hayes did have Northern Lights in it. I mean, it he crossed the haze with with uh, Northern Lights, and I think he told me it was the uh, haze number three. Uh, his his most worked hazes were one, two, and three. So number three, and I think it was a Northern Lights number two that he used to create Neville's haze, and he was really proud of it. And I, when I brought it back, um, the commercial growers couldn't get enough of it. Uh, it produced really well indoors. It wasn't like a normal uh, sativa. It, it had plenty of trichome production. Um, maybe only thing comparable at that time was White Widow, which I know uh, him and Scott had uh, some work together on producing Shanti Baba. Uh, they they worked together on that. And I, I know there was, you know, back and forth, but I never experienced that with Neville. He was uh, just a gentleman to me. Uh, you know, I went to his so-called castle and, you know, went down in the played chess with him on the table downstairs. And, and it's uh, a lot like me and just a nut about uh, pot at the time. I couldn't read enough about it. I couldn't see enough. I couldn't, get enough exposure. I couldn't find enough genetics. And he goes, yeah, just be careful because uh, it, it's a never ending road. He says, you go down this road <laughs> and he says, it just keeps expanding in front of you. And uh, there, there's really no end to it. And he was right. I, I you know, to this point, I, I never thought I would be here. Um, even still talking to people that were interested in pot. I thought, once it got legal that all these strains, these old ones that I spent all this time preserving, I would have done everything in vain because no one would want them because they want the new shiny uh, next grade poly hybrid um, that um, shines like a diamond in comparison um, to some of these old uh, building block strains, I call them, that I've kept viable for all these years. Yeah, wow. What a really unique history you've had with Neville. That's really cool. I'm I'm quite envious. I'd love to ask quickly, can you describe that Northern Lights 9? I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. Yeah, it's it's a uh, you know, a lot a lot like Northern Lights number 5, but I don't think it draws anything from uh Northern Lights 5. It has uh um uh, narrow leaves on on the top of the plant really broad leaves on the bottom some of the land the the bottom leaves getting as big as my hand more of an afghani leaning but then uh when it goes into flower most everything on top is all narrow leaf heavily trichomed um really dense uh buds uh very uh strong sedative stone but uplifting at the same time like a haze um Keeps you going, keeps you running all day. Uh, kind of like that Doobie Brothers song, keeps you running. Sounds like beautiful stuff. Dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's really lovely to hear. Okay, cool, 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 cool. So you've spoken about you know enjoying some of Neville's works, and uh, unfortunately, our listeners won't be able to see this because this is an audio-only podcast. But I can see sneakily in the background there's a plant more seeds sticker, Bodie. Oh yeah. I'm interested <laughs> to know uh, what other breeders do you think are doing good work at the moment. Well. Any, anybody that's done it for the love of the plant 
is in, in, in my opinion, and anybody that's breeding and testing their gear is working towards uh, a future in cannabis uh, that can only be commended. Uh, I can't, I can't take away from anything that's anybody's doing. Uh, Bodie's uh, work with, with some of the land races and bringing back uh, some of these older strains. Uh, I, I do uh, on occasion uh, talk to people that, um, and, and real recently, even today, talk with people that are, are giving him genetics to work with, or they're doing collaborations with him. Uh, so I know that some of his genetics or, or all of them are true. And that's kind of what I look for. You know, uh, it's like my motto, if in doubt, grow it out. So I've grown out Bodhi strains uh, that, that I'm interested in uh, just from people's descriptions of the plants when they finish them. I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's kind of, you, you hit me right on the head. That sounds like an old school plant. I'm going to run that. And um, yeah, I, I, I really like what he's doing. Um, he's a really nice guy. Met him one time. Probably doesn't remember me. Um, but, you know, that's the way I prefer it. Uh, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time in the shadows uh, very, very recently uh, having coming out and, and uh, sharing things. I, I just don't want things to disappear, you know, and... Um, that's why I'm here today, I guess. Yeah, nice. And I can 100% vouch for all of that. Bodie's got to be one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And I'm sure he probably does remember you, to be honest. I remember thinking that myself the first time I met him. I'm like, he's never going to remember me. But that's what makes him so magical. He's, he's so personable, you know. He, he, I bet he does remember you. Yeah. We talked about playing a bass. And, I, you know, as, as one of my hobbies, that's one of the things that, that I did was you know, I had friends that were musicians and, and we all loved to smoke pot. So we'd play, you know, I had a house, we all played and there was instruments in the, you know, in the house and, and all hours of the day, people would come and crash and smoke, smoke sessions going on all hours of the night. And, you know, police had actually come to the door and say, you know, I have the neighbors have said this and that you want to keep it down or we'll bust your grow. And I'm like, okay, well, you put it like that. Uh, but you know, music is another, is another thing that I, I kind of connect with, uh, cause it's for a pastime. If you're a grower, um, it's one of those things you can stay home and do, you know, you can play music and, and take care of your plants. Um, you know, anybody that's, uh, farming or, or growing knows that you only have a limited amount of time that you can go do other things, other hobbies and, uh, you know, music and musicians, uh, I met some fantastic musicians. I met some great collectors. Uh, I met, um, I gave a guitar to Paul Allen from Microsoft, uh, met him, went to his home. Um, so music people, I, I, I knew Al Hendricks and Leon, uh, Jimi Hendrix's dad and Leon, his cousin, and I had spent time uh, gigging with them and the lion's lair on highway 99 in Washington state. So, you know, to get out there with musicians and smoke and everybody go in the back lot and smoke out and Hey, what's this? And Jesus Christ, I thought this stuff was extinct, you know, and who are you? <laughs> that, that kind of stuff uh, keeps you going, you know, and it revitalizes you if you're plugged into music and, and you like playing music, it, it gets to be a passion too. 
Hear, hear. I'm I'm a kindred spirit with you. I love that. That's so awesome to hear. Um, yeah, links to the Hendrix family. That's pretty cool. Yeah, just you know, Al Al uh, just happened to be at the same bar we were at, and uh, me and my friends uh, played Red House, which is a blues Hendrix tune that we just absolutely loved. And Leon came up on stage and wanted to play with us. Played a couple of tunes, and then we went out back and shared some whiskey with Al and talked about Jimmy and uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a great time. And that was before, you know, everybody was after uh, Jimmy's legacy and, and uh, what he owned and rights to music. And um, they are part of the Hendrix family. That was the family. And, uh, but there was, you know, differences of opinion with uh, the sister, I guess, with Leon and, and, and Al, you know, was, he was Jimmy's dad. He was a great guy. You know, his uh, 90% of Jimmy's upbringing is with, was with Al. And to just sit back, I, I'm a great listener. Uh, I know I'm talking a lot right now, but now's my opportunity. I listen to people more than, than I'll put out because I also want to learn. I'm a great learner, and, and how I learn is listening. And I can gauge uh, what people are all about and their passions toward things just by listening to him and Al's uh, Al Hendricks, his greatest passion was his, was his son, Jimmy and his upbringing. Um, a lot of people don't understand uh, how patriotic Jimmy was uh, other than he played the star spangled banner at Woodstock. But uh, Jimmy was a veteran of uh, the 101st airborne, uh, not an easy outfit to get into. And uh, you know, he had a guitar, whole time he was in boot camp and and you know al made sure he sent him a guitar so hearing those stories that you hear firsthand from a parent are different than you hear about folklore and read from uh books and stuff so that's the kind of stuff i get from music on online i have some i have some uh crazy videos that a buddy of mine put onto youtube years ago under my alias Jaime Chiba and you know those have come back to haunt me and uh, <laughs> people talk Jesus you're a lot crazier than I thought you were and and uh you know it's kind of just all out there and it, it's a mixed mash of of some plants and uh um you know hemp fest number four uh my son who's who's uh, already a former marine he's in there as a uh you know 18 month old child in a in a stroller at hemp fest down at Gasworks Park. Uh, Hempfest, by the way, great inspiration. Vivian McPeak, one of the finest people you ever meet on the planet. Um, my experiences with Hempfest and all the people surrounding it, especially Jack Herrera, um, phenomenal event. And I think that's why uh, we're here today uh, at this point of legalization is because of uh, Hempfest and, and festivals like it. And I'll even include High Times uh, uh, efforts with uh, the Cannabis Cup and 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 their promotion. They might have made a lot of money, but you know they stayed in business. They 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 weathered the storms and and lawsuits. And and uh, their founder, Tom, like me, I don't call myself a criminal. I do call myself an outlaw because that's the life I've lived my entire life. And and you had to to be a grower, a breeder, a preservationist, 
um, that's the price you paid. There wasn't uh, um, a monetary price. It was a price of isolation and, and uh, anonymous, being anonymous always. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a rich life you've led. That's, that's so cool to hear and almost perfect timing. You throw that in cause we're sort of on the tail end of things. Uh, last question or two before we get into our quick fire questions that we always do at the end. Okay. I realized I hadn't actually asked you this yet. I'm sort of kicking myself. What grow style do you utilize? Are you an organics guy? Are you a more salts? I'm an organic, totally organic soil. Um, I, I believe in earth boxes as a uh, passive hydroponic um, soil system, organic. But um, using, using the earth boxes, um, I know they're expensive and it's a commercial uh, way to go. I know you can make them yourselves now, nowadays, but I, I'd purchased so many over the years. I still use them to this day. I can walk away from a grow for up to two days and not have to worry about uh, watering. Um, with my uh, raising children and, and having a real job in life, that, that was a real benefit to me uh, when I ended up doing everything alone and, and didn't have uh, some of the backup. I've been uh, really blessed to have in my life. I've had people come and go in my life that uh, you know were more passionate about the plant than just about anybody I've ever met. Uh, some of them were in it for their own financial gain, and they did really well. But, um, you know, just for their assistance and everything they did to help me along the way to keep these seeds going, I, I, I can't thank them enough. Yeah, hugely, hugely. I, I think that having the ability to run things with a busy life is really important and people around to help is always very, very useful. I probably should have slotted this next question a little earlier on when we were talking about it, but we had a, two or three different listeners chime in with essentially the same question, and they were wondering, have you ever grown out skunk cabbage, and do you think there's any relationship between skunk cabbage and the roadkill? You know, I got I got some uh, skunk cabbage seeds uh, from um, Alaska bean brains. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, they didn't germinate. I I didn't know that he kept them in a freezer and um, I probably hung on to them uh, to drop them into a cycle of, of a growth cycle uh, longer than I should have, because I didn't know probably that they were frozen. And so that might've been a, um, a reason they never germinated. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. you know, Alaska bean brains, great guy. Um, I, you know, I wish I had the opportunity to, to uh, finish them out because he said they were uh, it was a great strain, but we, we I have I have a cover crop outside of uh, all my grows is is uh, skunk cabbage, uh, it's 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 an actual plant. Oh, is it? The bears eat it, the deer eat it. Yeah, it's it's a plant that grows uh, extensively in Southeast Alaska and uh, British Columbia, uh, up the coast of Alaska here. There you go. That's neat. What a sort of like a small world sort of thing almost. That's that's really cool to hear. So on to our quick fire questions, which is the four or five questions we ask all of our guests at the end of the episode, and I'm always keen to hear people's answer. First one being, what is the single most memorable cannabis experience you've ever had? The single most memorable experience I ever had with cannabis was uh, 
on New Year's Eve in uh, Maui, Hawaii. Uh, I walked upstairs. Uh, it was a restaurant, uh, bar. I went. I walked upstairs from Front Street in downtown Lahaina to a bar called the Blue Max. Now, the Blue Max was uh, just fantastic old school bar open air but the music coming out of it just sucked me right in and uh i smoked a joint with uh, uh paco de lucia and um cecilia and capona from hawaii they were there with uh al Demiola, but they'd played played up at a, a resort north of there uh, but I smoked a joint with them, and then I listened to some music that they were playing. Um, as and it just just a magical night. Um, and I, you know, I think the pot was a catalyst. But uh, I always that's one of the strains I I didn't find out what it was that I, I had always wished that I had uh, asked them or or you know found out you know what the genetics were. So I could re recreate that stunt because it was like the most magical high I've ever had in my life. Uh, remember it to this day. Um, there's uh, in the old uh, Blue Max, there was uh, uh, couches for seating. And you would sit like five feet away from the band while they were playing. And people would be coming, streaming up the stairs. And uh, it was just, uh, just a, uh, like an out-of-body experience. I can't even explain it. Uh, just sitting there floating in the music and uh, and the uh, the the great uh, high that I had from whatever pot that was that I got from them. Yeah, the great unknown. Some of the best are are the ones that got away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's a great story. So, on the other end of the spectrum, what was something that you were really excited to try? Maybe your friends had even like sort of hyped it up a bit to you. And then when you finally got around to trying it, you were left feeling a little disappointed. Oh, man. Um, there's a purple strain that came out a while ago. Purple Punch. Yeah, okay. I was told that it was this was the, the, the be-all, end-all polyhybrid that would just knock your socks out. And a friend of mine got it from uh, a place in Oregon that sold clones. So it was like a certifiable clone and you know, bought it from a legitimate, uh, breeder. So, uh, grew it out and, uh, yeah, it was a total letdown. It wasn't, uh, anything I was expecting. I'm like, eh, sorry, I'm going to pass on, on working with this. Yeah. We've heard a few guests mention that, uh, it certainly has the purple, but maybe not the punch. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So this is one I, I really enjoy. I'm going to drop you off on a desert island and theoretically you can grow infinite weed for the rest of your life, but you can only take three strains with you. They can be either clones or seeds if you want to maybe do some breeding or whatever. What three things are you going to take with you? Uh, that's pretty easy. Uh, Mud by Delight, number one. Uh, number two is a strain that I created called Pax which is a sativa dominant. And I created it right after the shooting in, uh, in France. Um, uh, all the tourists were there to see an American heavy metal band and, uh, Pax means uh, peace in French. And, um, 
I took a couple of uh, sativas and uh, a, a sativa hybrid. Um, so I had some amount of indica in there. And um, yeah, it's definitely something you'd want to have on a deserted island because it's a, it's a time waster that uh, time is not wasted when you're high on it. That's, that's my best uh, uh, um, recollection. Of, and uh, Lahaina Luna Puna Butter, which is a Puna Butter originally from uh, Kona um, area, uh, actually a Puna district, which is on the Big Island. Um, and that particular strain, even today, is just uh, just a knockout. Um, I sourced it in, in Lahaina, on the streets of Lahaina. I went up to where it was grown in the mountains. Uh, they actually had a few sandalwood trees, uh, which had become a real rarity. And uh, I had an opportunity to go back to Hawaii again. I went up to that, that particular patch. Um, all the evidence of growing pot back then is, is long gone, but the sandalwood trees are nice and healthy. Uh, I had uh, locals ask me about their exact location because uh uh, carvers and and Pete, I said, you know, I I could show you the pictures, but I can't remember. I could I could walk back there blindfolded, probably, but I'll never tell anybody where exactly they are. But uh, beautiful trees. I, yeah. I I like I like plants and trees. I got I got redwoods growing in my own uh, my own yard. One of them's uh, thirty feet high, and I started it uh, from a, a seed um 21 years no 24 years ago wow that's really neat yeah that's cool that's cool okay we're gonna do a remix of the last question we're now going to you're you're the captain of the boat you're dropping someone else off on the island and it's someone who you're not a big fan of you know you might even go so far as to say you don't really like them and you get to choose what three strains you're going to leave them with what are you going to leave them on the island with? You know, I might straighten them out, so I'll leave them my three favorite strains. I love it. Maybe they'll become a better person. Beautiful stuff. Very diplomatic. I like that a lot. We've, we've heard some interesting answers from that question, and I, I like your response a lot there. Uh, so on to our final question for the episode. If I gave you a time machine and you could go to any place in history geographically, any time in terms of like chronologically, where would you go and what are you going to collect? Presumably, you're going to collect some seeds or a clone or something like that. Where are you going to go and what are you getting? I'm going to go back to Hawaii to the Blue Max and I'm actually going to ask those people, the musicians I was talking to and smoking with, what that particular strain was. It was the unanswered question of my life, I guess. <laughs> I love it, man. That one must really riddle you. Uh, it resonates constantly. I'm like, uh, you know, of all the things that were in Hawaii that I went through uh, trying to grow and trying to find that particular, I never have found anything close to it, you know, um, kind of like roadkill skunk. It might be, uh, you know, that elusive unicorn uh, that exists in my mind um that may not exist in a plant anymore and that just kind of uh keeps me going on uh on the end that what i'm doing isn't all wrong and it's not crazy uh preserving some of these strains because maybe there's something in uh in my quiver that uh 
another person is going to um, find just as enjoyable as I did that strain that I now don't even know what it is anymore. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So I think that just about brings us to the end of things for this episode. Were there any general comments or shout outs you wanted to give? Well, just if, if you're, uh, if you're growing, don't, don't doubt what you're growing until you grow it out and see what the potential is, uh, is something, um, isn't what you, what you want. Don't spend too much time on it. Cause we all only have so much time, uh, breed, breed and grow towards what does it for you? What rings that bell for you? And, um, you know, do share your genetics and your knowledge with everybody else, because in the future, it looks like, you know, the way we've been going the last four years, everybody's going to need cannabis a whole lot more than, than we need it right now. And it's been around for so long, thousands of years, helping and aiding uh, people that uh, the more we have and not the less we have as far as genetic um, capability is going to be important to everyone. I mean, if you can, if you can grow your own medicine and be happy um, and, and remember everybody started out a pollen chucker. There was no expert uh, breeders. In my opinion, when I started out, there was only people making seeds from things they got in, in, in other regions of the world and learning their chops and putting the work in and growing and breeding and crossbreeding until, you know, I'm sure everybody can agree that we've gotten a little carry away with the poly hybrids, but if you retain uh, some of the good things by searching for the recessive traits and the traits that you want and get rid of, rid of the things that you don't want, you can probably create some pretty phenomenal poly hybrids that'll last the test of time. Just, just my general opinion. Some very wise words there for people looking to make their mark lasting and to make some cool stuff in the process. So once again, a huge thank you and shout out to our friend from the final frontier and the founder of the Alaskan Cannabis Case, Jaime Chiba. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for your time and, and uh, your dedication to our plan. There you have it, my friends. What do you reckon? Share the love with Jaime. Big thank you again for coming on the show. Well, we're incredibly appreciative. But as always, these episodes could not happen without our incredible sponsors. Seeds here now. Number one seed bank in the industry. Check them out, guys. They've got all the hottest drops. Likewise, keep your garden happy and healthy. Get copper biological systems. These guys kill it. They'll keep your garden pests and pathogen free. Shout out to OGS, Organic Gardening Solutions, the Organic Homies Down Under, Top Shelf Seed Bank for all your genetic needs down under. And last but not least, huge shout out to the Patreon gang. You guys are truly the lifeblood of the show. Without you, episodes could not happen. If you're interested in helping support the show, all while getting early access to episodes, unheard additional content, prizes and giveaways, check out the Patreon. I guess that's it for this one, friends. 
We'll see you for the next one. We'll see you.